Our scripture reading is Revelation 10, and the text is also Revelation 10. Revelation 10, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded, By the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it in my stomach, when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations And languages and kings. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Revelation is intended to help the church to endure in the face of persecution and other challenges that it must face in the period of history between the first and second comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. It makes clear. That God's plan for the defeat of sin and evil involves conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And it makes clear that being followers of Jesus means being caught up in that conflict in various ways. There is the fight against sin that is part of every Christian life. But there's also enduring the hatred of the enemies of God and his people. And there is also enduring, uh, living in the midst of the judgments of God upon those who refuse to repent. In the last two chapters, we have considered first how natural disasters um, are part of the judgment of God upon those who repent, and also the suffering that is the natural result of sinful lifestyles are also God's judgment on those who refuse to repent. Christians suffer in natural disasters. We also 
suffer because of the sin that remains in our lives. But the meaning of that suffering is different. The meaning of suffering in the Bible is multifaceted. Many different insights that the Bible gives, and even then there is still much mystery about it. And even when we think about suffering for the people of God, one of the purposes of that suffering is to call, uh, for, for the enemies of God rather, one of the purposes of that suffering is to call people to repentance and salvation. And yet, one of the reasons for suffering in the Bible is the just punishment of the wicked who refuse to repent. And there's quite a bit about that in, in the Bible in general and quite a bit about that in the book of Revelation. But there are also passages in the book of Revelation which focus on the church. The Revelation, the book has a lot to say about the church and her calling in the world. We have seen how God seals his people to protect them as they live in the context of God's judgments upon the wicked. We have considered the description of the saints in heaven before the throne of God. Their suffering is over. God has wiped all tears from their eyes. We've seen in another passage that there is a relationship between the prayers of God's people and the judgments of God upon the wicked. One of the amazing truths about God and his way of pursuing the salvation of the world is that God's people are given a very significant role to play. Even though God, through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, is the great Savior of the world, and even though human beings have no strength or power on our own, yet there are many ways that God works through his people to implement the victory that Jesus has won. And that contributes greatly to the significance of our lives and our significance in church and kingdom. Now, our text today is one of those passages that speaks about the role of the church. The text is about the church's assignment to proclaim the word of God in the world. In the last verse of the chapter, John is told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and kingdoms and and languages and kings. Now, John, of course, was to prophesy, but prophesying is part of the calling of the church as well. And so what we have in this chapter is some of the significance of the prophetic calling of the church in the plan of God for salvation and judgment. So God see, John sees another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. This angel has a little scroll open in his hand. That scroll is very important in this chapter. So we need a little background. We're meant to understand this little scroll in the light of the scroll that we read about in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. In chapter 5, we are introduced to that very important scroll for the whole book. It's a scroll of the plan of God for the rest of of history. It's in the right hand of God, you will remember. And there we read of the first mighty angel who is described in a similar way to the mighty angel in chapter 10. And so back in 5 2, Revelation 5 2, 
John says, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And it turns out that the only person who was worthy to open the scroll was Jesus. And verse 5 of Revelation 5 says, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, these are all Old Testament ways of referring to Jesus. By his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has won the victory over sin and death. And because of that, he alone is worthy to take the scroll of the plan of God and to implement it, to open his seals. The rest of the book of Revelation describes what's written on that scroll and what happens when Jesus opens the seals. And the point of all of this is to show the church how Jesus Christ is directing history towards the new heavens and the new earth. What we read in the book of Revelation helps us to understand how Jesus is implementing the victory he has won, and that clearly involves both the salvation of his people and his judgment upon the wicked. Now, in verse 10, chapter 10, we see another mighty angel and another scroll. This is a little scroll, and it's open. The fact that it is described as a little scroll indicates that it doesn't contain everything that is in the big scroll of chapter 5. The little, the little scroll contains some of what is in the big scroll, indicating that it will reveal some, but not all, of God's plan. Some of the things are on that scroll and other things are not. We're not given to know everything about the plan of God. This scroll is open. The seals have been unsealed. The Lamb has opened them. The content has been revealed. Chapters 6 through 9. Now this little scroll is going to be taken up in the hand of, uh, taken from the hand of the angel by John. John is going to be told to eat it and then prophesy, and we'll get into that in a moment. But first we need to consider a little of what we read from the first seven verses of the chapter. The mighty angel is closely associated with the reigning, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some, people, some commentators think it is Christ, but most think it is an angel who represents Christ and so reflects something of Jesus' awe-inspiring majesty and glory and power. All of the various descriptors of the angel are found in either in the Old Testament or earlier in the book of Revelation. They all refer to some aspect of God's glory or Jesus' glory or his plan of salvation. So, coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud. Earlier in, in Revelation, Jesus is described as the one who, coming, who is coming with the clouds. In Daniel 7, 3, 13, the Son of Man, who ends up being Jesus is described by saying, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. The, the um, rainbow in Ezekiel one twenty-eight, the rainbow describes something of the glory of God. His face like a sun reminds us of the glory of Jesus at the transfiguration. His legs like pillars of fire 
similar to the description of the glorified Christ's feet in Revelation 1.15. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And so whether it's Christ himself or, the, or an angel that reflects the glory of Christ, the impression here is of the power and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are also important reminders of two Old Testament instances of salvation that are closely related to acts of judgment. The rainbow is a reminder of the flood where God saved his people and judged the wicked. The reference to pillars of fire remind of the story of the wilderness journey where God leads his people to, through the wilderness by a pillar of fire by night. God's salvation of his people in the Exodus story also involves salvation through God's judgment on Israel's enemies. And that is a large part of the message of the book of Revelation as well. As we've seen before, there are many, many links in the book of Revelation with the story of the Exodus, where God delivered his people from slavery and led them to the promised land. The the Exodus story is a foreshadowing of salvation in Jesus Christ. And the New Testament and the book of Revelation in particular often uses the Exodus story to help us to understand and to visualize the salvation that Jesus has accomplished and is pursuing as he directs all things to the goal of the ultimate promised land. So this description of this mighty angel with a scroll in his hand is making the point that Jesus is with his people just as God was with his people in the pillar of fire in the Exodus story. And one of the key truths of the Exodus story is that God saves his people through judging their enemies. And that's one of the key themes and truths of the book of Revelation as well. We've just come through two chapters that taught us about God's judgment upon people who refuse to submit to him. And here now we encounter this mighty angel who reflects God's glory and the glory of Christ with pillars, legs that are like pillars of fire. We're meant to think of ourselves as people whom God has delivered and is delivering from our enemies and as people who are being led by Jesus through the wilderness to the promised land. The greatness of the angel is meant to comfort us in all the difficulties of the journey. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. Ephesians 1.22 says of the exalted Jesus, and he put all things under his feet. The idea of having the sea and the land under his feet is that Jesus is Lord of all. The whole world symbolized by the sea and the land is under his feet. The symbol of a lion roaring has to do with God's judgment on the wicked. Amos 3.8 says, The lion has roared, who will not fear? The angel of the lion roaring in 
Amos is connected with prophecy. God, through his prophets, roars words of judgment and warning. And there's a lot of that going on in the book of Revelation. But this whole description of the mighty angel is intended to comfort God's people in the light of the judgments of God that are described in many places in Revelation. We think of natural disasters. We think of the power of evil at work in our world. And we can think of this mighty angel who represents Jesus and reflect and reflects his power and glory who is leading us through the wilderness to the promised land. Next, we have four verses, uh, about seven thunders. The book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, we have a section that talks about seven seals. We have a section that talks about seven trumpets, and one later on about seven bowls. And all of those are largely about God's judgments on the wicked. Here, we have seven thunders. But John is told, seal up what the seven thunders had said and do not write it down. So this seems to indicate that there are part of God's plans, parts of God's plans that are not revealed to us. And then the angel raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay but that the days of the trumpet call sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God, would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So these verses emphasize the greatness of God as the creator of all things. The angel swears by that there will be no more delay when the seventh trumpet sounds. And that at that time, the mystery of God would be Fulfilled. The mystery of God is God's plan for the defeat of sin and evil and salvation in Jesus. In Ephesians nine eight, sorry, Ephesians three nine, Paul writes that the purpose of his preaching was his preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ was to bring light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden. For ages, in God who created all things. So the angel in our text is saying that when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, the delay will be over. God's mystery, mysterious plan for the salvation of the world and the defeat of evil will be fulfilled. The key here is that the mystery has been revealed in the gospel. It's been announced in the Old Testament through the prophets revealed through Jesus Christ and the apostles. This is related to the little scroll, which is open in the hand of the angel. Little scroll is what God has revealed about his plan of salvation and judgment in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation brings together the message of the whole Bible. That's why almost every phrase in the book of Revelation is rooted in either the Old Testament or earlier parts of the New Testament. The little scroll is God's revelation of his plan of salvation and judgment given to his people in the Bible. And in the Bible, God has revealed that at some point the delay will be over and Jesus will return to wrap up history and to fill 
his promises and the warnings of the Bible. The seventh trumpet is about the end. Revelation eleven fifteen says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So the focus of this chapter is on this little scroll in the hand of the angel. It symbolizes God's revelation of his plan of salvation and judgment given to his people. That plan, that story is caught up and summarized in the book of Revelation. The Bible throughout speaks of the future in its promises and in its warnings. The Bible throughout is looking forward to the unfolding of God's plan, both for salvation and judgment. And the book of Revelation sums that all up in a powerful way. And the fact that the scroll is open indicates that it contains the part of the plan of God that has been revealed to his people. So the, the chapter is about the fact that God has revealed parts of his plan of salvation and judgment to his people in the Bible. And in the rest of the chapter, we see that acted out in symbolic form. John is told to take the scroll from the hand of the angel. John tells the angel to give him the scroll, and the angel tells him, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Now this language... Of eating the scroll that comes from Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Similar language is found in the book of, of uh, Jeremiah. The imagery of eating has to do with internalizing the message. And the fact that it tasted sweet but made John's stomach bitter re- refers to the fact that the message of God for the world has both delightful and difficult parts to it. It's a message of salvation for those who turn to the Lord. It's a message of judgment for those who refuse to turn to the Lord. And then John is told to prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. That's what John does in the book of Revelation. And that prophetic ministry is given to the church in that the church has been called to bring the message of the plan of God to many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now, the fact that the scroll was sweet in John's mouth, but bitter in his stomach is very significant. We experience this all the time. There are parts of the message of God's plan that are sweet. It's wonderful to hear and to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. There's incredible sweetness in being reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. There's sweetness in the Christian life itself. Psalm 19 says that the law and the precepts of the Lord are sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. In the context of the book of Revelation, there is much sweetness in God's care for his people in the the, the scenes of the worship of God in the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. There's sweetness in the victory that Jesus has won over sin and evil and in contemplating his power 
and his glory. But there are also parts of the message that are more difficult to stomach, if I can put it that way. The wrath of God against sin, the punishment of unrepentant sinners. It's an important and it's a necessary part of the message, but it is not sweet in the same sense that the good news of reconciliation with God is sweet. And the Bible itself is making this distinction between aspects of the message that are sweet and aspects of the message that cause bitterness. God's judgment upon the wicked, it's part of his glory. But it is not sweet in the same way that his salvation of sinners is sweet. And this is the Bible's own teaching. Ezekiel 33.11 makes it clear that this distinction is rooted in God himself. There we read, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So God himself tells us that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He has pleasure when the wicked turns from his wickedness and lives. We see the heart heart of God reflected in Jesus when he wept over Jerusalem. You remember? Matthew 23, 37, Jesus cries, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. 2 Peter 3, 9 has this sweet word about the Lord. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The judgment of God upon the wicked is is an integral part of God's revelation. It's part of the message that the church is to proclaim to the world. It belongs to the victory that Jesus has won over sin and evil. It is necessary for the glory of God. It belongs to the glory of God, but it is not sweet in the same way that salvation is sweet. God tells us he does not delight in the death of the wicked, but he does delight in saving sinners. And indeed, the lengths that he went through to secure our salvation is testimony to the greatness of his love for sinners. That's the message of the cross. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That love is shown in the enthusiastic and passionate invitation of the gospel message. The church is sent into all the world with the message that there is salvation in Christ And that invitation is made to all. Among the last words of the Bible is the invitation, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take uh, take of the water of life without price. That's the sweet part of the message. The contrast between sweetness and bitterness in our text shows us that we reflect God's own character when we find some parts of the message sweet and some parts of the message bitter. But the bitter parts are there. 
They're part of the message that the church is to proclaim. They may, they may not be sweet, but they are part of the good news because the defeat of evil is part of the good news. We do not relish God's judgment on the wicked, but we do proclaim it and warn people to flee the wrath to come. So in this passage, we have an interlude between the first six trumpets and the seventh trumpet blast. When the first four angels blow their trumpets, judgments of natural disasters fell upon the earth. When angels five and six blew their trumpets, the hordes of hell were unleashed to cause untold suffering upon the earth. God's people live in the midst of all that, even though they are protected by God, so that they cannot be harmed in any ultimate way. And then we have this chapter with the mighty angel and the scroll. The mighty angel represents Jesus, who leads his people through the wilderness to the promised land. And this is going on as the judgments are raining down on the wicked. And in this context, the little scroll is given to John, who represents the church message of salvation and judgment. It is to be digested by the church and proclaimed to the world. The sweetness of the message sustains and encourages in the struggles. But the bitter parts of the message are also sustaining and encouraging, even though they are not sweet. We do not delight in God's judgments upon the unrepentant world, but it is part of our hope because it is part of the way that God is dealing with evil in the world. And we are called to proclaim that message, all of it. The sweet parts and the bitter parts, God includes us in the fulfillment of his plans for the world. The proclamation of the message by the church is an important part of the way that God is fulfilling his plan for the world. Sometimes that proclamation bears fruit in the salvation of sinners. Sometimes it stirs up hatred and resentment and persecution as the claims of Christ and the call to repentance are rejected. There's a bitterness and a sweetness there as well. The book of Revelation, including this passage, is about enduring in the spiritual warfare that is leading to the renewal of all things. It helps us to deal with the suffering that is part of the Christian life. It's the sweetness of salvation that helps us to endure the bitterness of suffering. May God use our study of this book to help us to endure in the spiritual warfare that belongs to God's plan for our salvation. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we do praise you for your greatness and your glory as it is revealed also in this passage, the, the, the greatness and the glory of the angel which is reflecting the greatness and the glory of Christ. We thank you for the way in which all these different connections to earlier revelation give us perspective and understanding on your plan of salvation and how we fit into it. We thank you for the great comfort of that image of the mighty angel 
with his one foot on the sea and the other foot on the land and giving the scroll to, to his people, to us, to your church, through John. And we thank you for all the insights that you give us into your calling upon us and to the nature of the message that you give. We thank you for the sweet parts and we thank you for the parts that are more bitter and for the way in which you weave all that together for your glory and for the coming of your kingdom. Lord, thank you. We're thankful that you include us in the work that you are doing to that end, and we pray that you would help us to be faithful and zealous in doing that which you call us to do, to take part as church in the Great Commission. Lord, we pray that you would bless your truth to us, use it to shape us and strengthen us and encourage us. Also, we pray the same for the Lord's Supper as we will celebrate it in a moment. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord's Supper fits into the perspective that we've been looking at in a number of ways. One of the great themes of the Bible, which is prominent in the book of Revelation, is the close relationship between the salvation of God's people and God's judgment on the unrepentant. God's judgments are falling on the unrepentant, and that, that belongs to the way that God delivers his people. This theme is part of the celebration of Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is a memorial of the death of Christ on the cross. And here, too, there's an intimate relationship between judgment and salvation. Because on the cross, Jesus experienced the judgment of God for our sins so that we might be saved. So over and over again in the Bible, we see this close relationship between salvation and judgment, and that includes on the cross. At the, at the Lord's Supper, we remember that Jesus took upon himself the judgment of God for our sins so that we might experience salvation in him. And the sweetness and the bitterness of the message is also involved in the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, uh, those who are trusting in Jesus and living the life of repentance are warmly invited to take part. But faithfully administering the Lord's Supper also involves warning against eating in an unworthy manner. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven: Whoever therefore eats and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the, Lord, the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So to eat and drink in an unworthy manner is to take part in the Lord's Supper without faith in Jesus, without living the life of repentance. To discern the body of the Lord is to either to be trusting in Jesus' sacrifice or and maybe both seeing fellow believers as members of, of the body, the body of Christ. Whatever it means exactly, it's clear that it means that 
We are to partake of the Lord's Supper, looking to Jesus for forgiveness and seeking to live the life of loving obedience that we are called to live. Part of that life of obedience is membership in the church, which is why we require that those who take part are members of a faithful evangelical church. So there's both invitation and warning in connection with the Lord's Supper. But the invitation is not for perfect people. It's for sinners who are looking to Jesus alone for their acceptance with God, who are seeking in him to live lives that are pleasing to God, even though they struggle with many failures. All such are warmly invited to come to the table to receive by faith the tokens of bread and wine, which point to the forgiveness of sins and eternal life that Jesus obtained for us by his death, and in that way to be nourished in faith and in obedience.